This morning comes from Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of the wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray for your kingdom to come on the earth, but help us recognize that you have ordain the authorities over us in this earth and help us to submit to them. May your Holy Spirit lead the words of Pastor Jeff and open our hearts to your instruction. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate that. Well, just couldn't be a better scripture to read this morning in preparation for tax season, huh? (laughs) I was able uh, to visit uh, Washington, D.C. a couple times last year. Staff pastors, one of those times uh, in the fall, the staff pastors and a couple of our elders, uh, Kyle was one of those elders, uh, went to a weekend conference at Capitol Hill Baptist Church right on the hill, right there in D.C., and I had a couple of hours to sneak away. Uh, I I carved out a couple hours to sneak away and just visit the National Archives, seeing our hallowed founding documents. It has a kind of effect on you. You've been there, you know. And I have to say, I am genuinely grateful for the Founding Fathers for putting their lives on the line and the forming of this great nation of ours. I hope you feel that way. And I hope you know that we want you to feel that way. But then the reality sinks in. Here we sit. The political sons and daughters of revolutionaries. Rebels who dared to defy the governing authorities of England. So as the beneficiaries of political revolt, how should we, of all people, understand Romans 13, 1 through 7? When Kyle read that passage just now, did it make you feel uncomfortable? Were you uneasy about what it is calling you to do? I would venture to say these verses over the last three years have been the most commented on, written on, and deconstructed text in the entirety of the New Testament, maybe the Bible, due to the obvious reasons. Political upheaval, political angst over issues like freedom of assembly and freedom of speech and freedom to protest our government and freedom of religious expression, and on it goes. So how does Romans 13, 1 through 7, the verses we just read, apply in a uniquely United States context where, frankly, the Romans didn't have the rights that you and I have? What would Paul say to us today? 
First, uh, there's a couple of ways in which we need to understand this passage. And, and one of them is we need to set the passage in its context. We need to understand Rome. We need to understand a little bit of the history. We need to understand a little bit of historically what was going on at the time and, and, and how these passages, how these verses we just read would have fallen on the ear of Romans. It turns out that history is my forte, so let's do that. Paul's instructions to offer acceptable acts of sacrifice to God are now, that, those instructions are now extended into our civic life and our relationships with governing authorities. It pleases God. It is acceptable worship to God when Christians seek peace and pursue justice and stay out of trouble with the governing authorities so far as it depends on them. The second thing we need to see contextually is that Paul anticipates the growing animosity of rival factions in Rome and the need for believers to exhibit, listen, a bulletproof morality, a bulletproof social ethic, because tough times are coming, and you've already got a prelude. Paul doesn't know that in AD 64, Nero is going to burn three of the 14 districts of Rome to the ground so he can build over top of them. Vanity projects to himself. Paul doesn't know that. He doesn't know that Nero is going to blame that on Christians and that there's going to be a severe persecution coming. It's the first imperial persecution against the Christian faith in Rome. Paul doesn't know that, but Paul has history. Because in the 50s, early 50s, the Christians particularly the Jews and all Jews, because of the conflict over Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which was the message of the Jewish Christians living there in Rome, all Jews are expelled from Rome. And now, by the writing of Romans, they're back. And so between these two events, the 50s and the late 60s, mid to late 60s, this book comes to Rome. It comes to the church in Rome. And Paul is going to want to tell them, listen, in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition to the gospel, you need to exhibit bulletproof morality, bulletproof social ethics toward those whom you say you love in Jesus' name. The third contextual thing we need to understand is that Paul presents the ideal situation here in these verses between humans and their government between Christians and their governing authorities. Ideally, members of the populace would always be law-abiding citizens. Wouldn't that be great? And this, that is especially true of believers, those who name Jesus as their Lord. And likewise, in idyllic circumstances, human governments would just always do the right thing and be free of corruption. Wouldn't that be great? They would always bring justice against evil and disapprove of the bad by punishing it and approve of the good and uphold it. But we know in our repeated and uniform experience, neither one of those things is always true. But Paul is here presenting us the ideal. He's telling us, ideally, this is what your life ought to look like. This is what your relationship with human governments ought to look like. And then lastly, I have to say this, and I'm more convinced of this than ever. It should be noted that the gospel tradition is already, hear me well, a strong countercultural movement against the Roman culture on several levels. 
I would argue that the Roman church is already in violation of Roman values, norms, and possibly even some of their laws. Let me just give you a few. The proclamation of the gospel. Paul started this book out in Romans chapter 1 by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Whose gospel? Because in Rome, there already is one. It's the gospel of Caesar. And by Paul's day, the cult of Caesar, the imperial cult of Augustus had already taken hold. Jesus is opposed to Caesar's rule because Jesus is the world's rightful Savior and King. He is the world's rightful Savior and Lord. The, the, the terms Savior and Lord are Caesar's titles. They belong to him. Caesar's title was King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You go to Revelation chapter 19 and this rider on the white steed who has a sash across his thigh, which reads, King of Kinglings and Lord of Lordlings. That is Caesar's image, riding on the power of a white horse and coming with a sword, the power of the sword, with this sash with his name on it. And here's the Christian church going into the Roman world saying, nope, his kingdom is a sham. Jesus Christ is the real Lord. He is the real king, right? And so it's the gospel of Jesus that is the power of God unto salvation and true peace between men and their God, not Caesar's false gospel, not a counterfeit Roman imperial message. So the message is itself already subversive and counter-imperial. Also, the theological commitments of Christians and, frankly, Jews offended the Greco-Romans very deeply. Being monotheists, that means they believe that there is one infinite personal creator of the universe and there aren't any other ones. And so preaching that message in a Roman culture that is just filled with idolatrous symbols all around, idols all around, worshiping false gods who are not the infinite creating personal gods of the universe, this is deeply offensive to their Roman neighbors. Their Roman neighbors just frankly don't even know what to do with their theological beliefs. And also the religious institution of the church. It was illegal. And if it wasn't illegal, it was at least extremely frowned upon to start a new religion in your house. And this is why the Christian movement was so dependent on the synagogue in the first century, because they had to show Rome we are just an extension of Judaism. We are the fulfillment of the Jewish hopes, the Jewish faith. We are a sect of Judaism. They had to demonstrate that because Judaism was accepted in the culture because of its antiquity, because it was grandfathered in, because it had been around for a while. But now Rome is beginning to turn, uh, have a sour disposition toward the Jews too. So now what do they do? And so it was illegal to start a new church or a new movement in your house, but this is precisely how Rome perceived the church. This is illegal. And lastly, the value system of the gospel in contrast to that of Roman culture. Last week, we looked at the values like honoring others. Now, when you, hear, you and I hear that phrase, honor others, we think, well, of course, that sounds good. But in Rome, that was the opposite of their value. Their, their statement was, honor thyself. Bring honor to you. So the idea of honoring others stands in direct contrast to the highly competitive and merciless and brutal culture of social honor seeking in Rome. Sexual purity, Paul tells them, avoid sexual impurity. 
That's the opposite of Rome. Over and against their promiscuity and unfettered sexual expression, particularly tolerated among men. Men were expected to, to visit uh, the uh, brothels. Men were expected to have prostitutes and also women on the side. This was an expected thing in Rome. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't have sex with women who are, or other people who are not your spouse. What about the, the value of generosity versus the underhanded scheming of those who lived in Rome? The value system of the gospel directly clashed with and confronted the upside-down world of Roman social ethics, and this led some Romans to label them as haters. Nothing ever changes. In fact, the historian, the Roman historian Tacitus in his annals said this, these Christians are anti-Roman. They're haters of the human race because they preach the gospel, not of Caesar, of Jesus, and because they tell us how to live according to that gospel. So, with this already contentious context in mind, contentious relations between the Christian gospel and Caesar's false gospel, we have to understand the thrust of Paul's instructions here, right? The thrust of Paul's instructions. I'll put this up on the screen. So, our main idea today is that Paul acknowledges human government as divinely instituted, which now calls for believers to submit to governing authorities. And governments have a limited scope of authority, mainly to punish wrongdoing, uphold the good, and provide for the welfare of its citizens. And so, believers who obey the law should not fear any retribution or judgment. Human government is a divinely instituted thing by God, Paul tells us, and Christians are to generally seek to obey governing authorities as an acceptable and pleasing act of their worship to God so far as it is up to them. But it's not always up to us, is it? The first thing he tells them, number one, on your outline, if you're following along in your bulletin, earthly authorities are agents of law and order. Well, they should be. Verse one, he says, let every one of you submit to governing authorities. Since there's no authority accepted from God, except from God. And the authorities that are, are, exist are instituted by God. God is the author of human authority and government. God has mercifully given the rogue nations and peoples of the earth a system of retributive justice to punish wrongdoing and uphold the good. I want to tell you that story. I want you to see it in the Bible. It actually starts with creation. God decrees the worlds into existence, and how does He do that? Well, he says, let there be. And then the Scripture says in Genesis 1, and it was so. Now, if you were in ancient Mesopotamia and Moses stood up before your congregation and read this passage or recited this passage to you, and you heard those words in that order, let there be, and it was so, you would immediately think we're dealing with a king here. We're dealing with a sovereign ruler. So, understand, creation itself, God, in the act of creation, God is setting up His governance of the world. God is the author of governance. And then what is the very next thing you see him doing with all of these things that he's decreeing into existence? Well, he's putting them in their right order. He's ordering the world. This is also what governments do. They bring order to chaos, to anarchy. And then God creates these co-regents. A co-regent is just a, a vice president, a co-king, a viceroy. 
And it creates these human image bearers who are given a dominion mandate consisting of essentially two phases. He tells them you're to be fruitful and multiply over the face of the earth. You're to spread out, fill the world with the God-imaged kind. And then the second part of that dominion vocation, take dominion over the earth. This happens through the responsible development of God's arid, empty, uncultivated world. It also happens through the domestication of wildlife. So anything out there that you find that's empty or uncultivated or not grown, go out there and grow it. Take the Eden and extend the project of Eden into the rest of my good world. And that's their vocation. That's their dominion vocation. But then we have the fall. Not only do God's original humans fall into sin through disobedience, but their descendants spiral into moral insanity such that God deems it necessary to wipe all of them out save one family, Noah's family. And after the flood, God reissues Adam's vocation. Did you know that? Go back to Genesis chapter 9. I want to show it to you, verses 1 and 2. It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and the fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth. Every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, they are placed under your dominion, under your authority. And every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. So you're not just to be vegetarians, you're to eat the animals too. That's what he's saying. Sorry for those of you who are vegetarian. But this time, adding, he adds the first principle of human governments. governance. Look in verses 5 and 6, and he says, And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. If someone murders his fellow human, I will require that person's life, for God made humans in his image. This principle upholds the sanctity of human life. What God is saying to you is human life is precious, and if you take it, I'll require it of you. And this is the first principle of human governance, which is retributive justice. You do the crime, you're going to do the time. You're going to pay the penalty. And then we have the great divorce. The great divorce, which is Genesis chapter 11, which is so much more important of a chapter than you may think. From Noah came all the tribal nations of the earth who violate God's original decree for humans in two significant ways. Two significant ways. So if you've ever wondered about what is the story of Babel about, I'm going to tell you right now. Why is God so harsh on these people? It seems like they're unified. They got their stuff together. Why does God judge them? Because of two things that you can't see on the surface of the text. They're in the culture. They're in the culture underneath it. The first one is, instead of multiplying and filling the earth, instead of spreading out, they build up. So they congregate. They coalesce themselves together, and in their unity and in their language, what they're trying to do is they're trying to achieve something. But what are they trying to achieve? They build a tower. Those are called ziggurats. They're found by archaeologists all over the Mesopotamian coast, in every place. And this is what they are. They are not places where you live. You don't live inside of a ziggurat. They're like pyramids, but they're not. You don't live inside of them. They're staircases. They're essentially stairways to heaven. 
All of these ziggurats or all of these towers found around Mesopotamia, they have these staircases that go all the way up, and when you get to the pinnacle, here's what you do. You sacrifice to the gods so that you can open a portal to the heavens, and that becomes the nexus between the other world and this world. And then you strong-arm the deity. This is called divination. They, they invented idolatry and divination. Then you strong-arm the deity to do what you want him to do to make your crops fertile, to send you the rain, to give you the stuff that you need to do. And God looks at this human project and he judges it immediately. First of all, you built up, you didn't go out. You didn't fulfill the great commission, which was to go out into the world, spread out into the world, and take my rule, and take my love, and take my care and concern for the rest of this world, and be my representative in the rest of this world. You didn't do that. And two, you tried to start a new religion, so God factionalizes. What he does is he breaks them all up, and then he makes them go out. And then you have the establishment of human government. It's given a very limited project to maintain law and order, to bear the sword, to punish evil, to deliver justice. We see it right here in Romans 13. And this was, given a, this was a grace now given to the nations until the final, enduring, everlasting kingdom that God would send through his Messiah that would write the world that has been wronged. God's new covenant kingdom begins with a covenant promise made to Abraham to raise up him up as a nation and to bless all of the rest of the nations that he just divorced. He just left them to their own devices. And now what God says, I'm choosing Israel and I'm raising up this nation so that Abraham, your descendants will be a blessing to the rest of the world and all of the nations of the earth will then be able to come into the family. And then in addition to the covenant of Abraham, he gives the covenant of Moses. And then from Moses, he gives the covenant of David to set up his reign and his rule on earth. And the covenant with David was to establish God's kingdom reign on the earth through another human vice regent, Jesus the Messiah. And so David's descendant, Jesus, will inherit all the promises of Israel. He will atone for man's sins on the cross. He will raise from the dead to vindicate his claim to do so. And he will ascend and be exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and he will now welcome all the nations. The good news is all the nations can now coalesce. They can come back into his family. Isn't that great news? Now, here's what you need to understand. The institution of human government, even though God has established it, even though there is no authority on earth that isn't derivative of God's own authority, even though God is establishing it, God has established another kingdom. And those two kingdoms are running on parallel tracks. And when the first kingdom, the, the kingdoms of men, when they overlap in terms of their interests with the kingdom of God, they're doing well. But when they don't, they're in trouble. And understand that these two kingdoms are on a collision course. <laughs> they're on a collision course. And you can read about that in Revelation 7 through essentially chapter 20. That's what the chapters, chapter 7 through chapter 20 in the book of Revelation, that's what they're about. They're about these two kingdoms coming to loggerheads. And finally, what happens in Revelation 18 is the dissolution of human kingdoms. Finally, they're supplanted and replaced entirely by God's eternal, everlasting kingdom. Christ returns and sets up his earthly reign and rule. So understand What's the point? Earthly authorities are agents of law and order. 
And God has raised them up or instituted them in order to give us a system of justice, retributive justice. Number two, Christians should be good citizens of their country and their kingdom. And we would hope that those two interests overlap. It would be nice if they always did, but sometimes they don't. The Christian who obeys God's natural law in order, faithfully represented in the authority systems of men, I'll say that again, the Christian who obeys God's natural law and order, faithfully represented in the authority systems of men, live in the fear of God who instituted that human authority. So practically, what should this look like? Well, he tells us very clearly what it should look like. Firstly, he tells us to obey the law. He tells us to obey the law, be law-abiding citizens. So then the one who resists the authority, uh, authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you'll have its approval. For it is God's servant for you, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason, for it is God's servant and avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Here, I do not think he's talking about eschatological wrath. I don't think he's talking about wrath at the end of the world. You know, That's not what, I was, what he's talking about. I think he's talking about going to jail. I, thought, I think he's talking about paying fines. I think he's talking about being crucified. I think he's saying... Listen, God has given them a certain sphere of authority, and their uh, sphere of authority is to maintain law and order. And if you step outside of law and order, this is what you can expect. Understand, the Christian is not called to disobey the laws of men. And here's the general principle. We break the laws of God when we break the laws of men that do not require us to break the laws of God. So if it's a law of man in our culture, and it does not require, no matter how much you disagree with it, but it, does not, it is a law of the land, and you haven't been successful in protesting it yet or uh, leading the charge to get that law overturned or becoming a senator or becoming someone who can do that, listen, so long as the law is on the books and it's the law of man and it's not in violation of the law of God, you're required to obey it. So you don't like traffic laws? Too bad. So generally, we want favorable, favorable relationships with the governing authorities, and we do this as we model good Christian citizenship by obedience to the laws. Now, the example Paul gives here uh, are very interesting. The examples he's already given and he'll give right after this passage, is, passage are things that are moral, moral actions, right? Those are the kinds of examples he gives us. Uh, but this principle of, of obeying the law would also extend into our modern context in terms of the Bill of Rights. Now, the Roman citizens didn't have this. And by the way, the vast majority of people Paul, Paul is writing to here are not citizens at all. Because in Rome, only 10%, 10% of the population could afford to purchase citizenship. It was the right of the aristocracy. And the rest of the people were either considered rabble or the populace or just residents, Right? Uh, or lawbreakers. And so today, it's quite literally the opposite. Quite literally the opposite. Everyone born on our soil is considered here, at least in our context, to be a citizen, who, and, that, and those citizens are given certain irrevocable, unalienable rights enumerated in our founding documents. And so I think, in principle, Paul would encourage us to obey the law, but also the laws that he's referring to here are about your responsibilities to your fellow man, but you and I don't just have responsibilities, not in our context, we have rights. 
And so we don't just have responsibilities to pay our taxes and, and help our fellow man and do the kinds of things that he wants us to do here. We also have the right to freely assemble. We have the right to say what we want to say when we freely assemble, to preach God's word, to preach the values of this book when we freely assemble. We have the right to assemble and protest our government. We have the certain rights that Paul, frankly, could not even fathom an individual having in a nation state. He couldn't even fathom it. And so, we are to obey the laws, but we're also to exercise not just our responsibilities, but our rights. We're to submit to governing authorities as a matter of fear and good conscience. Well, he's very clear about this in verse 5. Therefore, you must submit. And submission means just that. It means to submit to the law, to submit to their authority, not only because of the wrath, but also because of your conscience. Living in the fear of God means to live under the authority of God and also to expect the consequences for disobeying human authority. But it also is a matter of good conscience. The Christian is not just checking boxes. The Christian is not just begrudging. The Christian is an enthusiastic citizen of his culture. That's hard to hear if you don't live here, right? That's hard to hear if you don't live, particularly in a conservative state. For those of you who are uh, Californian refu you're refugees from California, that's probably what's turning in your brain right now. It's difficult. But understand, we demonstrate that we live in the fear of God when we live under the law. So, we have different responsibilities and different, uh, different responsibilities, but we also have different freedoms that the Roman citizens and the non-citizenry population did not have. And we're also to love our neighbors. Look at Romans 13, 8 through 10. He says, do not owe uh, anyone anything. So be debt-free in this regard. Except to love one another. Owe people that. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What law? Leviticus 19. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, this is the general principle. Everything that you and I do should be done out of love for the other. Love for our neighbor. Because love does no wrong, it seeks to do no wrong to a neighbor. And so love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. You want to be a good, law-keeping, law-abiding citizen? Obey God's law. Love people. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill them. Don't murder them. Don't steal their stuff. Don't covet what you don't have. And then he goes on to say, resist sin. So if love is the central ethic of the Christian life, if everything we do comes through the filter of our love for others, then that means we are not loving others if we embrace darkness. We are not loving the world if we embrace its sin. He says in verses 12 and 13, let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency. So let me ask you a question. What happens when the laws of, of a nation require us to break the laws of God? What if they command us to embrace the deeds of darkness? What if they command us to affirm indecency? Well, here's the answer. It's in Acts 4.19. Here's what the apostles said to the Sanhedrin when they were required to stop preaching the gospel. This is what they said. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. 
for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. In other words, we're going to obey God. If it, com if it comes down to a choice and you're requiring us to embrace darkness or indecency or not preach the gospel, we choose the gospel. We choose to freely proclaim it. And so there are times when we must submit to God and resist the devil, and that means we resist the culture. There are times when it is right and proper to resist those in authority who attempt to deprive us of our God-given responsibility or our rights to the Great Commission. And one could argue that the exercise of that authority is predicated on free speech, being able to speak freely, the right to assemble, again, to teach a biblical worldview. Why bring all of this up? Because, guys, this is coming to our doorstep. I don't know if you read the news. I try not to. But I have to. I, I, I read uh, the Christian Post headlines every single morning with coffee. And some mornings, I honestly, I just have to skip it because the news in our society is just seems like it's getting bad. And one of the ways that we're seeing is that the, is that the culture, particularly trying to, through political activism, is trying to put the squeeze on the church to not tell the truth, to not preach the word. And so this is very relevant for our times, even though sometimes we look at a passage like this and we say, what relevance does this have to a, a U.S. citizen? It has a lot of relevance. We want to be the best citizens we can possibly be. We want to bring no reproach against the church so long as it is up to us. But we're not going to stop preaching the word. Can everybody say amen? Amen. 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 So this is very relevant. And then lastly, I want to say, prepare for battle. Live in a state of readiness for action. Now, by this, I don't mean we're going to get in buses and go down to the U.S. Capitol and break in or n no crazy stuff like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I want to show you what I'm talking about, actually. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. What happens now when the kingdoms of men, the governance and authority that God has himself has instituted set themselves against God's rule and his gospel. What happens? Well, here's what's going on behind the scenes. I'm going to show you this. It's in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. I'm going to read the whole passage to you. This is finally be strengthened by the Lord and, be, and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. So who are we dealing with here? We're dealing with the devil. God's arch enemy, the serpent from the garden, the dragon in Revelation, the beast, the false prophet, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Oh, you think it is, and it's such a temptation to think it is, but it's not. But against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavenlies. He couldn't make this more clear. We're, we're fighting against spiritual forces in this dark, evil age, in the heavenly spaces. For this reason, then, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the day of evil. And having prepared everything to take your stand, will stand. Therefore, with the truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. And in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. And stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me, if you would, that the message may be given to me 
when I open my mouth to make known the bolt with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. So we seek to be good citizens of our country, but we're also good citizens of our kingdom. And when their interests don't align, we choose our kingdom. We choose our kingdom. And sometimes to be a good citizen of the kingdom, a citizen of heaven, we must resist evil and live and affirm the truth. And if you, you prepare today for the battle that is ahead, the day of evil, when it comes to your doorstep, that is, the day when the evil and the wicked systems of men are unleashed and their sinful devices on you and on the church and on your family, and are you prepared with the right armaments, standing firmly in the truth, which many churches have abandoned today, I'm sorry to say secured in righteous living, being people who live according to God's Word, grounded in the gospel of peace. Do you know the gospel? Can you explain it? Can you share it? Can you give people your five-minute elevator pitch? Protected by an unshakable faith in Jesus and renewing a saved mind, wielding the power of God's Word against lies and deception and praying always. Pray, pray, pray. Pray in the morning, pray in the afternoon, pray at night. Pray with every breath like it's your oxygen. Pray for the saints. Pray for your family. Pray for this church. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your elders. Pray for your small group. Pray for the world. Pray for the people who don't know Jesus yet. The, the people that Jesus died for. And so, what he tells us is be a good citizen. Your country, yes, but your kingdom foremostly. Obey the law. Do what the law says, and so far as it is up to you, live at peace with everyone. And submit to govern authorities as a matter of fear and good conscience. Do it out of a good conscience, and do it as an expression of your fear of God who established those authorities. And love your neighbors. Let your core ethic, your central ethic be love for everyone around you to do your best to love them in Jesus' name and resist sin. Resist the temptation by our culture to embrace the darkness that they are drinking to the bottom of the cup and prepare for battle. Live in a state of readiness. Be, be a Christian. Live Christianly and pray for everyone you know. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for this word. And while sometimes it can chafe against our American sensibilities, we accept it as the inspired word of God, and we, we accept it for what it says and what it addresses in principle also. And Lord, we want to continue to be faithful to preach the gospel. And we thank you for human governance. We thank you for the authorities that you've set up, that you've established. And we thank you for their limited scope of authority, which is to maintain law and order, to maintain a sense of retributive justice so that evil can be punished and the good upheld. But, Lord, when they set themselves against you and your gospel, help us to stand true on your gospel. Would you help us with that this morning? And if you're here and you're, you're not a believer in Jesus, and frankly, this all just sounds a little weird and a little out there, can I invite you this morning, before you walk out that door, to consider this truth. 
that God made you in his image and you've fallen in sin. And you can't help yourself. You can get catharsis in the world, but you can't get absolution. You can't get atonement. You can only get atonement from one place, and that's the cross of Jesus because he died for your sins and he gave himself for you. And would you surrender your heart and your life to him now? Would you trust him for salvation to bring you from earth to heaven because you can't get there on your own? And if you're a believer here this morning and, you, and at any point you feel convicted, either in your attitudes or your actions, just take this opportunity to confess it and repent. Lord, we confess that when we, we have been rebellious against human authority just because we're rebels at heart. Lord, we confess that sin. And God, we confess when we have not stood for the gospel and we have not spoken up for the gospel. We confess that too. And God, would you make us good citizens of our country and our kingdom, but always firstly and foremostly your kingdom, the kingdom that you have established and inaugurated in Jesus that is coming someday to dissolve the kingdoms and the systems of human rule so that the world, world will be blessed by your reign. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.